Good morning. So this morning, we are in a section of Scripture that many of us are, are perhaps the most comfortable with as a whole. Uh, we're in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, and the reason that many of us are so comfortable in Acts is that we often see Acts as kind of the, the marching orders, if you will, the, the pattern for how the early church began. But I want to add that if we are not careful or intentional or, or learned, particularly in the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, there is an awful lot in Acts that we, we risk missing. And so this morning, with the, the benefit of hindsight and, and everything that we've been covering uh, last week and over the last nine months even, uh, with all of these stories kind of in our back pockets, I, I want to begin to help us see Acts in, in something of a, of a new or maybe at least more complete light. Uh, so if you're joining us for the first time today, particularly if you're online, we want to welcome you again. Uh, we are roughly 40 weeks in to a 50-week series that we've been doing this entire year from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. And every Sunday morning, we show up and, and there's a sermon that's hopefully based or rooted in something that we've all been reading independently in our personal study time throughout a given week. And so uh, hopefully that's, that's where we are this week. Hopefully you've been spending some time in Acts these last six or seven days. And so last week, we, we talked about, you know, we, we finished, rather, two months spent in, in the Gospels looking at the stories of Jesus' life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and so on. And so today, we're shifting our attention to the sequel, if you will, to, to the other half of that story, which is the first half of the book of Acts, otherwise known as the Acts of the Apostles, which is the, the long version of, of the name of this book. It's the, the sequel if you will, to Jesus' story. So this is a hugely important segment of Scripture. I'm excited to share it with you this morning. As we get started, I'd love to invite you to, to join me for a word of prayer. And as I always do, consider your posture before God. Maybe consider standing today, lifting your hands. Let's go to God with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, thank you so much for being an amazing and awesome God. What a, what a wonderful day you have blessed us with. Uh, Father, I, I've reflected uh, on this last week as I've lost numerous friends, people that, that were godly men who I looked up to, who have touched me, who are a big part of the reason why I'm standing here today. And Father, even as I, I miss them, I, I recognize the, the beauty and the gift that it is to stand here today, to, to be with my family, to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I hope we all recognize as we sit here that not a single minute or hour or day or week or month is guaranteed, Father. Every breath that we take is grace from you. You have given us something we do not deserve. And this morning, as we sit here in your presence, Lord, you've given us the gift of life. You've given us the gift of your word. You've given us the gift of fellowship. You've given us the gift of the, of the bread and the fruit of the vine. You've given us a gift of this property and this, this space and this time to be together. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us never to take this time for granted. That as we get into your word, Lord, that, that your word would bless our lives in, in ways that we could never comprehend. Father, would you change us and stir us and, and, and mold us into people more like Jesus this morning? That's my only ask. Father, be with me. I pray that these words are not mine, that they're yours. We glorify you because you are the king of all kings. You are the Lord of all lords, and you are worthy to be praised. Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Thank you, Jesus. In your son's name, amen. So if, if you are uh, in any way interested in the tech world or computers or just, I don't know, entrepreneurship in general, particularly digital kind of entrepreneurship that, that we experience here in our local context, uh, the year 1997 was a really, really, really big deal, particularly in the computer world. Because for as long as I can remember, there have been these, these two main camps, if you will, of computers. There are those who used Apples or Macs. By a show of hands, raise your hand if that's you. Are you a Mac person? Who are the Mac people in the room? Okay, why are you so bashful? <clears throat> and then on the other side, there are those who are more in the PC camp, the, the Microsoft Windows base. Raise your hand if that's you. That was me until 11 years ago. All right. And people felt very, very strongly uh, back then, especially about which system they, they wanted to use. And, and the reality is, not much has changed. Case in point, raise your hand if your team iPhone or iOS. Who's, who's using that today? Raise your hand if your team Android. Okay. There's a whole lot of you who are just not into your phones, I guess. Raise your hand if your team flip phone. Nobody? Okay, a few of us. All right. Right on. Right on. Well, in, in, the, in the wake of, of Windows 95's release and, and Steve Jobs' firing from Apple in 1985, uh, Bill Gates and, and Microsoft had proceeded to, to grow and basically mop the floor with Apple to the point where Apple is very much in danger of going the way of, of Blockbuster and going the way of, of Polaroid and, and so many other companies that have failed, right? They were, they were on the verge of going out of business. But this, this strange and kind of perfect storm of events happened shortly after Windows 95's release. The first one was in December of 1996. Apple came in and they bought the computer company that Steve Jobs had gone and started called Next Computers, and they reinstalled him at the helm, the CEO position over all of, of Apple, the company that had fired him 11 years earlier. And about that same time, Microsoft was being sued and deeply in danger of being broken up. It predates me, but how many of you remember Bell Telephone Company? And then Pacific Bell, Southwestern Bell, all the different companies that got broken up as part of that. My mom worked for Pacific Bell, right? Um, so they were in danger of, of that happening to them because here in the U.S., we say monopolies are kind of illegal. You kind of need to have some choice and competition so that's good for consumers. So Microsoft had a problem. Apple had a problem. And suddenly these two rivals, and if you know the story, these are more than rivals. These are like enemies, found themselves strangely in need of one another. Apple needed money to stay alive, and Microsoft desperately needed competition to avoid being broken up. So each of them did the unthinkable. Microsoft gave money to Apple, and Apple uh, accepted an investment from Microsoft. And so in, in Boston, in 1997, Steve Jobs goes to the front of the room. He's at Macworld, this, this conference for all the most impassioned Apple fans there are in the world. And, and believe me, they're impassioned. I'm one of them. And, and he shocks everyone. And he announces that he and that Bill Gates have linked arms, and they're suddenly going to be working together instead of against one another. And so you can go on YouTube later today if you want to, and you can watch this clip. And you're going to hear cheers, but you're also going to hear boos when this happens. Because regardless of... of 
how you felt about this. Everyone had a strong opinion about this announcement. There were those who were very embracive of this change, very embracive of the unification, but not everybody was. Some saw it as, as a betrayal because they were, they were Mac people, and Mac people do Mac things in Mac ways. They did not want to associate with PC people, right? Does that sound familiar at all? Have you, have you ever known other groups of people that struggled to, to really not want to associate with one another? Dr. King once famously said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. He said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into the oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and high place shall be made low. The rough places made plain or smooth. The crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Amen? You see, no. Unfortunately, humanity has always had this proclivity to resist unity, to divide and separate, to lift one people while pushing the others down. And that reality matters as the book of Acts begins. And I'll show you why it matters as we get further into this text this morning. But Acts begins either in a very familiar way or a very surprising way, depending on how well you know the book of Acts and if you know Scripture very well. Because if you know Scripture, you know that Acts chapter 1 and 2 uh, assumes a few things. But, but you might assume, if you don't know, that following Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and so on, that he just immediately ascends into heaven, and that's the end of his story. What you may not realize is that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection going around and talking with people and eating with people and breaking bread with people and, and, and visiting with all these people after he rose from the dead. For 40 days, he does this. But he's, as he's preparing for that moment of his, of his ascension, of his ultimate departure, he looks across the table at his closest friends with very important instructions. This is Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, Do not leave Jerusalem. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, these are, are incredibly important words, and we understand that with the benefit of hindsight, but, but quite clearly, these are words that they didn't fully understand yet. Nevertheless, they, they stayed. They stayed in Jerusalem. And so as Acts chapter 2 begins, 
we're introduced to a brand new term. It's the term Pentecost. Now, what is Pentecost? Well, what you may not realize is that Pentecost was not a new thing at all. It was an old thing that had just come to be known by a new name. And so Pentecost is just the Greek word that means 50th. You're like, okay, why 50th? Well, because it was 50 days after the Passover celebration. So you remember last week, we we did this whole meditation remembrance on on the, the Passion account in Luke. What was Jesus doing with his disciples last week? Do you remember? Well, he's in Jerusalem, along with all these Jews from all over the world who've traveled there for the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And all of that was a festival that God had set apart to commemorate what he had done to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, right? You remember this. They, they painted the blood of the lamb on their door, over their, their door frames as, as a symbol, or, or to, I shouldn't say as a symbol, Passover is a symbol, but, but the actual event in Exodus was so that death would pass them over when, when God comes in to free them from Egyptian captivity. And in their hurry to leave Egypt... Their bread did not have time to rise, we read about. And so they, they grabbed the dough without leavening in it, and they fled the country. And so unleavened bread became used as a way to remember their haste or remember their hurry for which they had when they, when they fled Egypt. And so, of course, last week, as we're, we're talking about what Jesus is doing with his disciples, Jesus takes that feast and he expands on it. He fulfills it. Are we all tracking with me so far? We remember this, right? And so he takes this cup. He says, this, this cup of wine is my blood, and it's poured out for you. And he takes the unleavened bread, and he says, this is my, my body. It's broken for you. What you may not realize, however, is that when the Israelites observed these festivals or these feasts, there was another festival that came shortly thereafter. How long after? Well, 50 days to be exact. And it was called the Festival of Weeks. Weird name, right? Festival of Weeks. What's that all about? Well, let's unpack a little numerology because numbers in the Bible turn out to be deeply, deeply meaningful and significant, though not often in all the ways that we like to read into it in popular culture. So when God creates, how many days is he actually creating things? Anybody remember? Say it a little louder. I heard somebody say it. How many days? Six days, right? He's creating for six days, but was everything complete yet? Was that, was that the full scope of creation? Well, the answer is no. There was another day, a seventh day of rest, and it was a day called the Sabbath. Yeah, we're going to wake up a little bit here, guys. And so the number six and the number seven are, are deeply, deeply meaningful and significant in Scripture. Six would later become known as kind of a number of incompleteness, whereas seven would become known as a a number of completeness. Six often equated with things like evil, and seven equated with things like good. And so to to use kind of biblical numerology for an example, I know what you're all thinking. You hear the number six and you go, six, six, six. What what is that all about? Well, in, in biblical ways, you know how we say God is not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. We tend to repeat things in threes when we're trying to emphasize. It's like saying God is really, really holy. But when we say 666, it's not 
that specific number. It's the number six repeated three times. So it's not just evil, it's evil, evil, evil. Do you understand what I'm saying? Conversely, when we look at our, our church address, what's our address? 777 Brotherhood Way. So if you're a, a biblical numerology nerd, you're swooning over that. You're like, well, this is the greatest address in the history of the world for a church, right? It's really, really, really good. So what is a complete week? How many days? Seven days. And what would be a complete number of weeks? Seven weeks, right? So any math people in here, you remember your times table? Seven times seven, 49. Well, that's basically where the name, the Festival of Weeks, comes from. It's seven weeks of seven days per week plus one. And the plus one is an extra Sabbath, an extra day of rest that they were to observe on the 50th day. So seven times seven, 49 plus one, 50, you get 50th. You get Pentecost. Everyone following with me? Okay, good. So every year, there was this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover, where the people would, would celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, which coincided with the beginning of the barley harvest. Remember that. Say barley harvest. It coincided with the beginning of the barley harvest. And so the harvest was not complete yet. And so the bread was unleavened during this time. But 50 days later, there was another pilgrimage, another festival in Jerusalem. And it was the festival of weeks. It was seven weeks of seven days plus one. And it represented now not the beginning of the harvest, but the completion of the harvest as it is now, and it was the end of the wheat harvest. And so all of a sudden, when you start reading up and studying what the Festival of Weeks is all about, you'll notice that the, the eating habits of the festival changes in a rather symbolic and significant and surprising way. Here's what it says in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23, verse 15 and following. This is from the day after the Sabbath... The day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast, baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. So, two leavened loaves of bread. This is part of the festival of weeks. Two leavened loaves of bread. I want you to remember that. We're going to come back to that later. It's going to become significant. So back to Acts. So all of these Jewish people, both those who believe Jesus is the Messiah and those who don't, are converging on Jerusalem now a second time for the festival that Leviticus said is this is also a lasting ordinance for generations to come. There's massive crowds of people, again, in the city, but there's only about 120 at this point in time who are believing in and, and really following Jesus. Uh, remember, Jesus has just left about 10 days earlier. He ascended into heaven, so they've been without him for 10 days now. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1 begins. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So 120 believers all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that had separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now that there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews... 
from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So you have all of these people from all over who've just come into the city, but they all speak different languages, right? It's not altogether unlike today. If we had a, a worldwide festival and everyone came together to celebrate something, there would be a few different languages there. So not unlike today, except miraculously, whatever the disciples are saying in their own language, all of these people listening are hearing it in their own native language and dialect. The accent's right, the word's right, everything is right. It just hits correctly. If you ever watched Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's this little yellow fish called the babblefish that you shove in your ear, and it allows you to hear the, the language of any alien creature that's spoken all throughout the galaxy. Well, it's kind of like that. This isn't some heavenly language as it's often characterized that's being spoken up in the celestial realms. This is just average, everyday language, just like you and I speak here, except that when I speak English, you hear Spanish, or you hear Portuguese, or you hear Mandarin, whatever it might be. And so the skeptics look around and basically they're like, ah, these guys are drunk. That's the only explanation for all of this stuff, which used to seem like a really dumb and weird thing to accuse them of and say. Until I learned a little bit more about Pentecost and the Festival of Weeks, because this is a party. This is a celebration. And what are they celebrating again? Do you remember? It's the wheat and the barley harvest. Anybody here care, care to take a guess at what you make with Beer, or with, <laughs> I gave my thing away, with wheat and barley. You make beer, right? I, I gave the answer away. So being drunk at this festival was not an unusual thing at all. I'm not condoning it. The Bible's very clear about drunkenness. It just is. And so Peter stands up and he addresses this massive crowd of people. And he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. What's his reasoning? It's only nine in the morning. Not that this would be an insane thing. It's just that it's, guys, it's too early. Come on, it's nine in the morning. No, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so Peter goes on to share what Joel wrote in Joel chapter two. But Joel wrote this 900 years before Peter is telling them about this right now. He says, in the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will, will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. In verse 21, it says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who? Everyone. And so what Peter proceeds to do with the attention of these full crowds is to teach and reinforce not just even what Joel says. He says, hey, remember what King David said? And he, and he brings it all to a close in verse 36. John read this just a moment ago. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So you can imagine the scene, right? You kind of picture yourself there. Everyone's there. Everyone can hear Peter, understand him clear as day in their own language. And Peter just testified powerfully 
about what all of this commotion is about. And so they're, they're listening to everything he has to say. They're processing, processing, processing. And, and some of them are clearly having that like sinking feeling like, oh my goodness, what did we just do 50 days ago? He's right. We just took the, the Messiah and we crucified him 50 days ago. Like we blew it big time. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, this video before. It's a guy who's driving a forklift and he, and he suddenly bumps into a rack and all of a sudden, just one after another, this rack comes crashing down until the whole warehouse is, is completely in shambles. Everything around him falls. Well, if you can imagine, hopefully that guy's okay, but if you can imagine how he feels right in that moment of like, oh, I just messed everything up. That's what everyone at this crowd is feeling right about then. Like, whoa, what did we just do to this Jesus character? It's like this, but worse, way worse, right? And so it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, we're, we're in a bad place. What, what do we do? What do we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, or in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So you, you remember how last week uh, and this week we, we mentioned the, the Passover, we mentioned the, the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, and we mentioned how it's kind of inextricably linked to that moment where, where the people are fleeing Egypt and their slavery, their captivity there. You remember that, right? These, these two things are inextricably linked. Well, one of the traditional understandings of Pentecost and the Festival of Weeks is that it is also inextricably linked to that story. And if you remember that story, what happens? They leave, they flee through the waters of the Red Sea, and then immediately they go and they camp at the base of Mount Sinai, right? You remember this. And what happens when they're camped at the base of Mount Sinai? Do you remember? Moses goes up on a mountain, and God does something. What does God do? He gives them the law. He gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And so what Peter is describing here, in this moment, Pentecost, is very much in line with Moses at Mount Sinai. But it isn't the law they're receiving this time. What is it that they're receiving, church? Say it again. The Spirit. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. As my, my buddy Bobby Valentine says on his blog, he says the new exodus has taken place. That's what this moment represents. This is the new exodus. Lastly, if you were here, I asked you to spend some time and to meditate on your own captivity. What are some of the ways where you have been captive? What are some of the ways where sin has held you in, in a form of slavery? We did that for this because this is a new exodus moment. This is, this is significant. We're not ready for that slide just yet, Maraf. And so now the people want to know, okay, we're in slavery. We, we tanked the warehouse. We just did something really, really bad. We killed the Messiah. What do we do? What do we do about this? And Peter says, guys, don't worry. There's hope. There's hope. He says, you got to repent. Turn away from, from all the stuff you were doing. Turn away from the way you were, you were treating and reacting to Jesus. And be baptized. Go through the waters like Israel did in Egypt. Go through the waters like Jesus did in the Jordan River. Go into the tomb like Jesus did and come out of it to a new life. All of that stuff. Be baptized 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like us. That's what, that's what his message is. You can have the Holy Spirit just like us. All this crazy stuff you see happening right now, you can have that just like us. All you got to do is repent and be baptized into Jesus. And it says that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And so in that moment, one sermon, one message, Peter takes the, the group of believers from 120 people to 3,000 people. Now we could stop right there. And it would be a great message, a great reminder of what's happening. But this story wouldn't be complete. We could spend a lot of time talking about the rest of, of Acts chapter 2, which is some of my favorite stuff in all of Scripture. And that would be a great use of time. Because what do we have? We have all of these new believers who are coming together, and they're, they're teaching one another. They're breaking bread. They're, they're encouraging one another. They're selling what they have to give to one another as they have need. Imagine going, ah, you have a medical bill? I'll sell my car. I'll take care of you. That's the kind of stuff that's happening right now. And we love this text because it's a text that informs so much of the way that we want our church experience to look like. It's, it's the kind of community that we covet, the kind of togetherness that we covet. But if we stopped there, this message still wouldn't be complete. Why? Because for the most part, who's there? Who's hearing this message? Have you noticed Who's hearing these words? Who's believing and not believing at this point in time? Well, this is a Jewish festival full of Jewish people who are in Jerusalem. And if we stopped right there, it would be so easy to fall into all the same habits that the Israelites fell into for thousands of years, where they said, we are God's chosen people and they are not. If we stopped right there, we're in danger of that. Now, there's a whole lot that happens over the next several chapters in Acts, just like during the, the week of Passover with Jesus. The apostles are healing people, just like Jesus. The apostles are being persecuted, just like Jesus. The religious leaders are plotting to kill them, just like Jesus. And so the apostles are being told not to teach in Jesus' name. Hey, whatever you guys are saying out there in the public square, don't be talking about Jesus. That's what they're being told right now. We even meet our first martyr. We meet a man named Stephen who stands up to the, to the Jewish leaders with a scathing retracing of their history, and he accuses them of, of murdering Jesus just like they did to all of the prophets from old, which of course provokes them to, to drag him out of the city and stone him to death. But in the wake of that tragic moment, and in the face of all of this opposition, Acts chapter 8 begins to depict how the believers were scattered all over because of the persecution. And at first glance, the temptation, I think, is to react much like we might react here in America when we face opposition, when we face persecution. It's to, to cry foul. It's to, to get angry. It's to, to scream about the injustice. And yet, what you quickly begin to realize is that the, the persecution is being purposed by God. You can put that slide up now, Maraf, because as these believers scatter they end up very much like that dandelion you used to pick as a kid and you'd blow on and all of these seeds would go wherever they go. They end up planted in all of these new places outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem, places where they can share everything that's happening in and around the life and the community of Jesus. This is a whole new audience. 
For instance, the Apostle Philip ends up first in Samaria. This is a place where no Jewish person would ever willingly have gone. These are the others. These are the less thans. These are the the half-breeds, if you will. Next, we see him. He's on the way to Gaza, and and he sees this, this Ethiopian official who's riding in a chariot, who's reading the prophet Isaiah, an old text. He says, hey, what do you need? He said, yeah, help me understand this stuff. And, and he sits down with this Ethiopian guy and says, hey, that, that, that guy you're reading about in Isaiah, that's Jesus. That's, that's what this is all about. And so as you keep reading, you begin to see, like, there's this man named Saul. We, we know him as Paul now. He's on his mission to go and, and imprison and kill the messianic movement that was building and growing until he's confronted by Jesus. And then he's healed of his blindness so that he could go and, and to kind of borrow language that we've been using for the last several weeks so that he could see clearly who Jesus was and is. And what does he do as soon as he sees? Well, he gets baptized, and at once he begins going into the synagogues and preaching about Jesus until he's run out of town and sent to Tarsus, where he's from. And so I want you to see and get this picture where all of these people are suddenly planted all over the Mediterranean region. They're in Tarsus, they're in Caesarea, they're in Antioch, they're in Gaza, they're in Samaria. And what do all these places have in common? This isn't Judea. And these aren't predominantly Jewish people. The message of Jesus is becoming a redeeming message to all mankind. And that's what Joel said. When Peter was standing there in Acts 2 and he's talking to the crowd, and he says, this is what Joel was talking about. What did Joel say? He said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on who? Say it again. All people. That's who I'll pour out my spirit on. But do you know who still doesn't quite get it yet? It's the guy who's sharing Joel's words. Peter. He still doesn't quite get even what he is saying. And so in Acts 10, here's how cool God is. God takes a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a Roman soldier, if you will, named Cornelius. And he has Cornelius send some people to go and get Peter and bring Peter to his house. And at the same time they're on their way, he gives Peter a dream. And in this dream, Peter sees this sheet that's coming down out of heaven, and it's got all these animals in it, animals that Jews are not permitted to eat at all, according to the law. But this voice says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way, no way. I would never eat something that God has made unclean. And so the voice replies, hey, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do you see where this is going? Do you see what what, what is happening here? And so Peter wakes up. There's a knock on the door. And he goes and he opens the door. And there's these two men from Cornelius. It says, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. And a holy angel came to him and told him to ask you to come with us to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And so the next day, Peter journeys over there. He arrives at Cornelius' house. And what's the first thing that Peter says? He says, Cornelius, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. This doesn't happen. But God has shown me something. And he's shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. 
And so Peter shares this message that God's put on his heart with Cornelius. And verse 44 says that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The uncircumcised or the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Peter then leaves Cornelius' house. He starts heading back to Jerusalem. Word travels fast because by the time he gets back into town, they've already heard what's been going on. They're like, Peter, what is going on, man? We are hearing rumors that you are going and hanging out with Gentiles. What is this all about? And Peter's like, it's true, it is, but let me tell you what happened. And he goes and he recounts the whole story again. And when he's done, chapter 11, verse 18 says that when they heard this, they had no further objection. And they praised God. And they said, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Are we all awake? Are we all hanging in there? Church, we take all this for granted now. But I want you to stop and, and consider just how important this is. In fact, if you, feel, if you feel like being involved, point at yourself for just a moment. Just like this. <laughs> because unless you, and, and I'm talking about the person that you're pointing to, unless you can trace your lineage back to Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, who became known as Abraham and subsequently to Isaac and Jacob and so on, it was not believed that Jesus, the Messiah, was for you. It was not believed that Jesus was for you. Jesus was a Jewish man, a man who claimed to be the king of the Jews, right? Do you remember what the disciples asked him before he ascended into heaven back in Acts chapter 1? They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. What are they envisioning when they ask that question? Do you think they envision those words having anything to do with Gentiles? Anything to do with you and me? No, not at all. Even as they more clearly see, they're envisioning a kingdom of Abraham's descendants, of his family. It's a kingdom for the Jews, primarily. And so when we read Acts, particularly in, in churches of Christ, much is made of the early church. Right? We, we say, here's what the early church did. Here's what they behaved like. Here's how often they met. Here's what they taught when they got together. But even in our favorite chapter, which is Acts, Acts chapter 2, they still thought these words and this Holy Spirit was a gift for Jewish people, not people like you and me. And I say that not to denigrate the early church at all, but to illuminate just how critical Acts chapter 3 through 11 really is in understanding the bigness of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. When Apple and Microsoft came together, there were those who cheered and there were those who hated it. When Dr. King's words began to come to fruition and segregation began to get dismantled, obviously it's still not a perfect system, but there were those who cheered for it and there were those who hated it. 
And so how do you think people reacted when all of a sudden Jewish people who'd only ever associated with Jewish people realized that Gentiles were part of the club too? That Jesus' sacrifice was for everyone. There were those who cheered for it, the ones who were following Jesus primarily, and there were those who hated it, especially those Jews who rejected Jesus. And so the book of Acts changed everything again, and it happened at Pentecost. And so I want to go back and I want to revisit something that is critical. Back in in Leviticus chapter 23, when the, the festival of weeks was introduced, do you remember what it said? I said we'd come back to this. Leviticus 23, verse 17 says, From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast, as a, a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Bigger loaf than this, but something kind of like this. This is white bread. It was wheat bread, but you get the idea. Two loaves. It's the belief of some that those two loaves were an early sneak peek, a hint, if you will, of something greater that was still to come. It's the belief of some that they represented the unity of Jew and Gentile alike, given thousands of years before this moment ever happened. Because what I want you to realize about Pentecost, about the Festival of Weeks, is that the traditional observance of this festival involved one more thing every year. And it was the reading of the book of Ruth. How many of you saw the email this week and watched the seven-minute video on Ruth? I'm sure a lot of you were like, why on earth are we talking about Ruth right now in the book of Acts? Well, there's a reason for it. Because what is Ruth all about? Ruth is about a foreign, non-Israelite woman from Moab who is widowed and cares for her mother-in-law, but there meets an Israelite man during the barley harvest named Boaz, a man of noble character, a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer, if you will, a man whose job it was by Jewish law to marry and care for her. Now, if you don't know what all of that means, culturally speaking, it sounds very misogynistic in today's culture, right? This man comes in and rescues this lowly woman. But that's not what this story is all about. This story is metaphorical and symbolic of our reliance on Christ, that the foreigner the oppressed, the woman, the alien, the least of these, the Gentiles, suddenly can be brought into the family of Israel where we are fed and we are cared for as the bride of Christ and we are rescued just like a descendant of Abraham. Two loaves, Jew and Gentile alike. And what's more, and this is purely speculative on my part, 
But even my, my Old Testament scholar friends who I've talked to about this have admit that there, there might be some merit to this. What stands out about these loaves way back in Leviticus? Does anything stand out? What, what's different about that from all the other bread we normally partake of in a worship service? Anybody? Barbara, I heard you mouthing something back there behind your mask, but the mask is blocking it. They're leavened, right? They're leavened. They're risen. They're, they're complete in a way that that bread, when they fled Egypt, was not complete. There are two words that I want you to know. We've talked about these words before. One is the word ruach, and the other is the word pneuma. It's where we get the word pneumatic from. But they're two words, both Hebrew and in Greek, that mean basically the same thing. Wind, breath, or spirit. What gives a loaf of bread its, its risenness? It's, it's the gases inside that form and cause this thing to grow in volume, right? It expands with that gas, with that, that air, if you will. Purely speculative, but perhaps, just perhaps, those two leavened loaves were a hint of the ruach, the pneuma, the wind, the, the breath, the spirit of God that would one day inhabit both Jew and Gentile alike. Now, full disclosure, and this is sort of for the advanced Bible students in the room. I bet there's at least someone in this room this morning who's going, wait a second, leavened bread? Leavened? We, we all know leavening is supposed to be symbolic of, of, of sin and, and things like that, that that we want to stay away from. There's a whole reason everything's unleavened bread, unleavened bread, unleavened bread. Well, ironically enough, and this is kind of new to me just this week. I think many of us may have, may have misunderstood the Bible's use and imagery around leavening. Because even Jesus compares the kingdom of God to yeast, which has worked its way through a whole batch of dough. And what's more, when Jesus partakes of the Passover in the Gospels, it only says bread. When it talks about it in Acts, it only says bread. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which talks about unleavened bread, Paul does not say get rid of the yeast. He says get rid of the old yeast and the old bread that is leavened with malice and wickedness. In other words, it's not the fact that it's leavened that matters. What matters is what it's leavened with. And I got to admit, I'm still wrestling with that one myself because I've heard for my entire Christian life that leavening represents sin and, and corruption and all the stuff that we want to stay away from. But it's food for thought. Now, what's the point of all of this? What, what do we take from today? Well, it's this. Forgiveness is for everyone. Forgiveness is for everyone. Does that mean that everyone will be forgiven? No, that's not what it means. It means forgiveness is there. It's available. It's created for everyone. Because for thousands of years, this has been a community of people who only heard half of what God was ever really saying to them. They heard the part where God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But they routinely forgot the part where God said, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, you are the conduit for all. The chosen few is the conduit to bless all. And so as Acts begins, it intentionally hyperlinks back to all of these ancient Jewish feasts and festivals in ways that would be very obvious to the average Jewish person 
but it does so in a, in a meaningful and irrefutable way that reinforces that not only is the Holy Spirit here, but that the Holy Spirit is available to all. The message of Acts does the dirty work to tear down the boundaries that divide on the basis of race and class and gender and more, and it reinforces an old ancient truth that had long been forgotten, that forgiveness is for everyone, for everyone. It's for man and woman alike. It's for Jew and Gentile alike. It's for rich and poor alike, for resident and alien alike, for the sick and the healthy alike. It's for everyone. Remember, who is Peter talking to back in Acts chapter 2? He's talking to all of those Jewish people in the crowd who 50 days ago were yelling for Barabbas and saying, crucify him. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to a crowd who are, who are guilty of murder. And you're going, hey, certainly forgiveness isn't available for murderers, right? What does Peter say? He says, no, there's hope for you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. In the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit too. Yeah, you guys are guilty of some stuff. We all are. But this promise is for you and for your children and for all the generations who are still to come. Forgiveness is for everyone. But not everyone will repent. Not everyone will be baptized into Christ. Not everyone will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The choice belongs to each and every one of us personally. And so throughout the opening chapters of Acts, there is, there's no shortage of people who will be indignant. No shortage of people who will reject the words that, that Peter and John and Philip and Paul and so many others will share and testify about Jesus. Lots of people reject it. Lots of people reject what I'm saying each and every Sunday morning. For them, they made their choice. But for those who are willing to hear, to receive, to repent, to, to pass through the waters of baptism, forgiveness is offered to us all. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be educated enough. You don't have to be religious enough. You don't have to be holy enough. You don't have to be Jewish enough. You don't have to be man enough. You don't have to be anything enough to be forgiven. Forgiveness is for everyone. Jesus doesn't care what's in your past. We as a church don't care what is in your past. Forgiveness is for you. And because of that, and because we are all the worst of sinners, amen? We are all the worst of sinners. This place is a place for you. It's a place for the broken. It's a place for the lost. We are all the worst of sinners. And forgiveness is available, and it's for everyone. The gift of God's Holy Spirit in you is for you too. And so we invite you, if you have not already, to receive that gift today. I want to close with Dr. King's final words. He said, I have a dream that one day every valley, every low place shall be exalted and lifted up, that every high hill and mountain shall be made low, that the rough places will be made smooth, that the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Church, that dream that he had, that's a real dream, and it's available to all of us for eternity. And so I want to invite you as we close in song here in just a moment, if you are ready to receive Christ, and you're saying, yeah, I'm as guilty as those guys in that crowd. I'm as guilty as a murderer. I'm as guilty as anybody. I stand broken. I stand condemned. But that message that Peter spoke to repent and be baptized, I'm ready to do that. I want to turn away from my old life. I want to go into the waters with Christ and come up to a new life. That's available to you, and we invite you to that today. If you're watching online, email me at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. And if you're in this room right now, as we stand and sing this song, I'm going to sit right there in the front row. If you are interested, you can talk to me then. You can talk to me in the courtyard after service today. I have one more thing to share with you at the end of our song today, but let's stand, let's sing, let's praise God.